Every time I sit in this chair, I feel like Eric Andre sitting down at the desk. Yeah. After he's finished destroying the studio. We haven't done that. Well, the band's playing. We should do that. Well, we don't have a band yet. That's probably why. So what we need to get is a full ensemble jazz band with Questlove in it. Yes. And then they can be can, the backing track. Can we track get Questlove? While we destroy the same furniture every week. All right. But in increasingly dangerous and outlandish ways. Cool. I think that would send our ratings skyrocketing if indeed we had ratings. That may Actually, have been done. We, we have ratings, technically. I don't know what that means. They're not like TV ratings, but they're ratings, nonetheless. There's iTunes ratings. This is true. There's, I suppose, ratings in the form of likes on YouTube, I guess. So, yeah. I don't know. Vote with your phone now. Do you want to see us destroy the entire studio every single time we make a new episode? <laughs> uh, are you going to custom build that every time? Yep, every time. I don't want to do that. I know I didn't take... It didn't take that long to build this thing. Yeah, but it was, it was annoying it was a to slight degrease hassle. all the pipes and do the stuff. It was a slight hassle. Um, I just realized that I left the book over there, but you That's, know what? It's over there. It's not actually essential for us to show the book because people Imagine been, the book. Yeah, imagine the book. People who've been following this series for a while, this Weapons of Influence series, know that we have been going chapter by chapter through Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. And we've been breaking down each of the psychological tactics that people use to convince you to do things that you might not otherwise do. And this week we're talking about peer pressure. Something like that. Basically. We're talking about something called social proof. And now that I think about it a little bit more carefully, social proof isn't exactly it's peer pressure. It's more indirect than that. Yeah, because peer pressure is like your peers are, are literally trying yeah, to get you to do something. they're pressuring you. This is like, it's, it's less direct than that. Nobody's forcing yeah. you to do stuff. You just believe them because they're people. So I actually read this chapter. Um, and, you know, I think up until this point, I have read all the chapters entirety. Okay. And entire, entirely, not entirety. Uh, but this one I read today, so it's fresh in my mind. Yeah. It may even be fresher than your mind's version of the chapter. That is true. Because I think I read you read it, it a few read days it ago. several days ago. Yeah. Oh, no. So maybe I will be the the more knowledgeable one this time, simply because it's a little bit fresher. It's like a fresh durian in my That's mind. That's fine. I, I don't have a durian. That's the fruit you want <laughs> Cool. I figured if I went with a durian, it would make you well, do you, a double take. Well, you got me on that. So. <laughs> I Mine's not that fresh. It's more like some regular boring fruit, like a banana. Yeah, it's like an overripe banana. It's yeah. got some brown splotchy spots on it. Well, that's when you start eating it. Yeah, well, not, that's when you go, oops, I should have eaten that a few days ago, nah, and I'm going to eat it now. Nah, I don't just, like it when it's it. like that. It's like, I mean, it's not bad, but it's a little soft and it's kind of gross. The outside starts to get the little little spots. That's when you know the, the it's ready to eat. I eat it like the moment it's yellow. That's not when like it's ready it's to eat. Like it's not green anymore and it's, it's not, yellow. That's not when it's ready to eat. Probably this not. This man doesn't know how to eat bananas. Then again, I'm not a huge banana fan. Well, obviously, Tom. I did used to watch Bananas in Pajamas when I was a kid, though. Hmm. Maybe, so. that, maybe that's why you don't want to eat them at the right time. <laughs> that may you don't be want true. to hurt I the have, banana people that often. Or I have nightmares of them. <laughs> and you also like show. plantains. Which I double do not like. Don't be such a picky eater, Tom. I wish I wasn't. And I don't, I think in most cases I'm not. But in the case of plantains and bananas. Whoa. Whoa. It wasn't even just plantains, it was roasted plantains, 
with a strawberry coulis. I know, but so they you made the plantain dessert, and I respect the dessert That's itself. Good. That's good. I do, and I also respect the cafutio fris, which I still can't say correctly. I've been trying to get that French R down, but I can't do it. Not yet, anyway. I'll get it. Uh, but they also make a plantain appetizer at Ophelia's, which is one of my favorite restaurants in Denver, and I don't like that either. So I think it is just whatever genetic composition of plantains does not agree with me and my palate. And who knows? Maybe it'll change. All right. Well, if, if enough people eat plantains, then you're probably going to believe plantains are good through the values of social proof. Not true. Not so. Because there's some specific qualities that make social proof powerful oh. and some specific opposites of those qualities oh, no. that render it mostly useless. So we're going to get into that. Okay. Uh, Let's learn why you won't eat plantains anyway. There, we, Yeah, this is why I won't eat plantains. I have some information, and the information is I don't like them. They're yucky. So? <laughs> All right. Uh, in your own words, good sir, what is social proof? Um, basically, so he talks about... Um, People people tend to act on instinct to incomplete evidence a lot, partial evidence, because our brains are designed to take shortcuts and create new shortcuts all the time. It's why we generalize things. It's why we fall for all of the tricks this book goes over. Yeah. It's because we're trying to save time. We don't want to think that hard. And social proof is when in the presence of uncertainty or you don't know the answers, you basically look around and say, wait, wait, what's everyone else doing? They probably know what they're doing. Yep. Let's just do that. They are all wearing suits in that building, so I should walk in there with a suit. Little did you know, it was a funeral you weren't invited to. (laughs) And you don't look so smart anymore. I'm not sure why you thought you should have walked into the building in the first place just because people were wearing suits inside There are plenty of of people in there. You weren't sure if you should be in the building. I guess so. That's true. There's a lot of people in there. There's a lot of people in that building. Yeah, it's popular. If you're walking it's by and there's nobody else, it must be a party outside. in there. Everyone's in the building. They're all wearing suits. So you got to go in there. What if you, What if you want to network? <laughs> At a funeral? Yeah. Here's my hey, I actually do some uh, SEO consulting, <laughs> web development work. My father just died. So I didn't have any yeah. examples prepared. <laughs> <laughs> I had a perfect example but, of this actually. Oh yeah. Yep. A better and, than mine. Uh, it may be better than okay. yours, though. I, I don't know. That was a pretty good example. <laughs> Someone okay, may think Okay, go that. on, go on. <laughs> so I went to the mall the other day because I wanted to buy those wireless ear pod things. The Apple ones? Yeah, like the, the Apple Air, ones. The AirPods? Mm-hmm. Cool. And unrelated a little bit, uh, my friend Matt told me recently that he never goes to stores to buy things because they never have what he wants, and he's right. They didn't have them. And last time I went to go buy a pan, I had to buy the floor model because they didn't have it. Every single time I go to a store... They're out. What's up, stores? You know what? That is kind of... I went to Target to get distilled water the other day. Out. Statistically weird. I don't know what it is. I went to Whole Foods to get milk last night. I mean, I guess what you want is probably something other people want. So that I guess that makes sense. Yeah. But even when I'm looking for like, I'm looking for this specific book. And I'm just like, oh, this very specific book is out. But of course, there are like 10 billions of other copies of the Savage books. And... Come on. Every single time I've gone to Whole Foods, like the past five or six times... The bag I want, out. Stores are bad. Oh, no. They're all bad. They're always out of what I want. They actually, I think they can sense. Or maybe I'm exuding. They can sense they're about to make a sale, and then they say, don't. Put that in the back. Don't give it to them. Every time we're profitable, <laughs> we have to pay taxes. Yep. Or maybe Jeff Bezos is doing the math, and he's just like, 
if Thomas Frank buys the baguette, we make about a dollar marginal profit. But if he can't find it and we do that enough times, he will eventually talk about it on his podcast, which will convince enough people to go buy baguettes at Whole Foods and we'll make more money. That's so their business strategy is annoying me. So I talk about their products because all publicity is good publicity. Bad press is still press. That's the math right there. That's the plan. (laughs) Anyway, I go to the mall to look for those. And you know how... Our mall, because it's in the rich people area, apparently, charges you to park. Yes. So you got to go in and you got to go through that little automated kiosk, get your ticket, go in and park. So I'm coming out of the mall and there's two lanes you can go through to leave the mall parking lot. Both of them were lit up in green, so they looked like they were working. Okay. But I saw two cars in the right one and no cars in the left one. And then I saw a third car decide to get in line behind the two cars instead of going on the left one. And for some dumb reason, I went behind that car. So I decided to be fourth in line instead of just going Mm -hmm. to the left one. Yes, that is a good example. And I had no indication whatsoever that this was broken. Like, I think there was a little tiny thought in my mind that thought, well, if they're not in that line, then maybe it's broken. And I don't want to be sitting there with my car just unable to get out. And then have someone pull it behind me and then have to wait. So I just got in line behind everyone else. But the key thing was I had no information to tell me that that open lane was bad to go into except for the fact that there was nobody in it and that everyone else had picked the other lane. Yeah. So that's a good example of social proof. And it's a good example of the two factors that make social proof really powerful. Number one, actually, it's a good example of one of the factors. Um, Number one is uncertainty. So if you are uncertain of what to do in a situation, then that's when you start looking for the social cues. What are other people doing? That's probably going to be the right thing to do. And I think we've pointed this out in basically every one of these episodes, but social proof is good for the most part. Oh, yeah. They're all useful. If everyone is running away and like you can't see the stampede of bison that's coming after them or something, you should probably still run away anyway. Otherwise, you're going to get trampled by a stampede of bison once they crest the hill and you see them and it's too late. Like, it makes sense. But in a lot of cases, as we are going to uh, illuminate in this episode, people can exploit that pretty well. And in addition to the exploiting stuff, um, social proof can lead to some pretty bad consequences just in and of itself because of something called the bystander effect. Oh, yes. So we're going to talk about that. Yes, pluralistic ignorance. But, uh, yeah, pluralistic ignorance. That's the quality. But basically, uncertainty is the main factor here. When you don't know what to do, you're going to look around and see what other people are doing. Uh, The other factor is similarity. People are a lot more persuaded by the social cues of people that they think are like them rather than people who maybe seem different. So a really good example of this was the author's son loved being in pools, but would never get in a pool without having his little inner tube thing around his waist. And uh, Robert Cialdini spent all this time, like weeks and weeks, trying to get him to swim in the pool and learn how to swim without this thing. And he just refused to do it. And then he's like, I know what I'll do. I'll bring over this 21-year-old grad student of mine who's a lot younger than me and who's big and muscular and strapping, and he'll probably look really cool to my son, and he'll he'll get him to, to not use the inner tube. And that didn't work. So he's all frustrated. 
He takes his kid to summer camp, drops him off, comes back the next day, and as he's coming to pick him up, he sees him dive off the diving board into the pool without the inner tube. And he freaks out thinking that the kid's going to drown, and as he's running over to the pool, he sees his kid swimming without the inner tube and gets out. And turns out it was because he had seen another three-year-old kid swimming yeah, without the inner tube. So because he saw somebody else who was similar to him doing that, now he thought, okay, if he can do it, I can do it. Or if he's doing that, I should do that too. Yeah. But it's less persuasive if it's a 21-year-old grad student who's six feet tall or your dad yeah, or well, something like that. Because you could be like, well, of course they can. They they have all these advantages that I don't. Their circumstances and social rules are different. Mm-hmm. And that story got me thinking, um, how often does Ashley tell you to do something and you don't do it and then maybe a few months down the line somebody else tells you to do it or suggests it to you and then you actually do it? Uh, what kind of things? Anything, really. Like... Deciding to watch a TV show or changing a behavior you, know, you might have. You know, I don't know that she's told me to do a lot of things. Well, Anna tells me to do stuff all the time. So maybe Ashley's very different and doesn't suggest it's for you to do things. That's because I do what I want. <laughs> maybe, I know? mean, I also do what I want. But no. <laughs> I think maybe maybe Anna's just more the kind of person who's going to tell me what's on her mind and if she wants me to to watch a show that she likes or change something that I do. Oh, Ashley knows I don't want to watch the shows she likes. Therefore, she never even bothers to try. I don't think she's going to try to have you watch Friends. She knows. She knows that I, <laughs> I'm not that invested. I mean, you Friends is watch, cool, but I'm not going to watch the whole you thing. You did watch How I Met Your Mother. Wasn't that her suggestion? That's because we were watching it together, though, which means oh, okay. it wasn't like I was watching it for my own reasons because yeah. I trusted her. I was watching it with her. Okay. So I, I can't think of a thing off the top of my head, like the exact thing, but I know that several times throughout my relationship, Anna has told me that I should watch something or told me that I should start doing something or quit doing something and I'll often ignore her and I have my own reasons, a justification for why I'm not going to do it. And then maybe several months pass and another friend will suggest it and then I'll, I'll be like, hey, I could actually do that or maybe I'll do that. Okay. And then she gets really mad at me. Because from her perspective, I didn't listen to her, but I did listen to the friend. Now, my theory on this has always been that she's the one who planted the seed and it just takes uh, several exposures to the idea and maybe an exposure to the idea from multiple perspectives to make me take it seriously. Or maybe like you have like the seed planting period, but then there's like the period where like the the product or the, the, the crop actually sprouts. And maybe it's the same with an idea where you have to plant it once and you're really just putting it in the ground and not seeing anything. And then after a while, it's kind of been lodged there for a while and someone else happens to bring it up and now it's the right time. You're primed for it because yeah. you've had a little bit of time to think about it. It's kind of like how when you got your bike stolen and you were just thinking like, I'm going to walk everywhere. I'm going to get a skateboard and try that. And I was trying to tell you, just get a new bike because it's like the cost of four tanks of gas. And you weren't out receptive to that idea at first. And then like a I week later. it cost four tanks of gas. You know, okay, whatever. It, well, I think I was showing you $200 bikes. That's not what I as, ended as up as with. The, as the option. And then nope. you ended up with something more expensive. Yeah. Which is fine. You solved that problem. You put the bike in your apartment. So unless Spider-Man comes to steal it, I don't think you're going to lose Spider-Man it. Spider-Man can take it as long as it's Toby. As long as it's Toby. Or well, the what one. about Tom Holland? Or the new one, yeah, but not the amazing Spider-Man. Only Andrew Garfield is he not is allowed not to steal allowed my bike. He is not allowed to steal my bike. 
He's not the real Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> what about 60s Spider-Man? Can he do it? Uh, <laughs> is that feasible for a two-dimensional Spider-Man to it enter could be. my apartment? If so, then sure. It could be. Why not? Never say never is all I'm saying. All right. <laughs> but it took you a little while to come to terms with that idea. And I think eventually you more convinced yourself of it than me having convinced you. Yeah. And I kind of realized that. I was like, right now, he has all these different options in his head, and the bike's been stolen, so he's probably pretty mad about the whole bike thing and doesn't really want to think about it, even though from my a little bit less emotionally charged perspective, it was still the best option. But you couldn't come to it. But reading this chapter made me think the whole similarity principle, the fact that social proof works better on people who are similar to each other, it made me wonder, like, I'm very close to my girlfriend, but in many respects, I'm not very similar to her. That is true. So if she's maybe talking to me about a way that I should run my business or a productivity technique or something, I might be more receptive to the social proof generated by somebody who I find really similar to me in the way that I work or that I find really similar to me in the kind of businesses we run. So maybe if my friend Matt, who's also an online entrepreneur, also has a beard, also drinks tons of coffee, is basically me, tells me to do something that Anna told me to do, maybe my mammalian brain is going to be more receptive to him saying it, as unfair as that sounds. I don't know. I don't want... In the business sense, I think that that's fair. Yeah. In general, the shortcut can be unfair, but it, it seems reasonable to be like, well, you're similar in career aspects, therefore you've you've already got embedded in your head all of these things that I've already thought about and yeah. I already am worried about. Yeah, exactly. I was just... I was wondering about that. And there was there was really nothing in the book that talked about that question, but this chapter raised a lot of questions in no, my well, head. Well, that so. makes sense because that explains potentially why similar people would matter so much. It's not just because they're similar and because you're close-minded to everyone else mm -hmm. because that would be dumb. It's because you think they probably have similar life situations, and if it solves those similar situations, it could solve yours. You're not just like, yeah, yeah well, I don't listen to girls. It's more yeah. like... Yeah, well, I have these different goals in mind, and this is my friend who happens to be a guy, and I know he's got the same goals in mind, so mm -hmm. I listen to him about those goals more. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And my thinking now is it's part that, and it's also part the whole idea of an idea taking time to basically germinate well, and be it's ready It's like to Inception sprout. without the cool machine. Yes. It takes, the, takes a little bit. It is Inception without the cool machine. And there's also, uh, what do you call that, the availability heuristic at play? Because Anna doesn't get to see all the other times when somebody else plants an idea in my head, and then she repeats it oh, unbeknownst yeah. to her, and I do listen to her. Like, she's the one who convinced me to stop biting my nails. And yes, she did nag me about it many, many times, but there have been other people in the past who have also told me to stop doing it, yeah. and I ignored them. But she never gets to see that. She only gets to see the examples of, I'm your girlfriend, and you're ignoring me, but now you're listening to this random person, or this person who shouldn't be as important to you as I am. And sorry, but yeah, that happens sometimes. Yep. What are you going to do? <laughs> we'll just tell you that it's because of this, uh, it's because social proof it's and social proof. Uh, yeah. various concepts within it. Exactly. Uh, so I want to go over some examples of social proof in addition to the whole girlfriend thing and the whole uh, parking checkout thing. So the chapter started out with the example of canned laughter. 
Oh, yeah. Basically laugh tracks on TV shows. And the interesting thing is that when you ask people if they like canned laughter, they will invariably say, no, I hate canned laughter. Laugh tracks are stupid. I can tell that they're just masking a TV show's bad jokes. And in fact, I remember watching, um, there's a video on YouTube that does Big Bang Theory without the laugh track. And it's really awkward. Yes. And real bad. Yep. And it, it just kind of shows you how high quality that show actually is. But even though people hate it, and even though people can very easily tell that it's fake, the TV executives still use it because it works. There have actually been studies that have shown that canned laughter makes people laugh harder and find bad jokes, like low-quality jokes, to be more humorous. Yeah. So they still use it. And like directors and TV writers have to fight to get canned laughter not put into their shows, and it's usually a battle for them. And what I found really interesting at the end of the chapter was that canned laughter is nothing new because even back in the 1800s, the French opera would have these people called, and how do you, is it claqueurs? Yeah. I don't know how to pronounce it, That's but basically paid clappers. Yeah. And there would be like a whole company of people who would seed the audience and then there'd be a chef de claqueur, which is like the chief or the leader, and he would lead everyone in that little group in starting applause or in saying bravo, saying encore. Um, I forget the other word that I think was like BA or something like that. I don't, uh, I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember what it means. But basically, they're the ones that get the rest of the audience going and clapping, even if the opera wasn't actually that good. And in a very similar case to the canned laughter case, they were very open about this. They would have ads in the newspapers that everyone read for these jobs, yeah. and they didn't try to make any effort to keep it secret because they realized very quickly that even though people know that the audience has these clackers in them, and even though they know it's totally fake, they yeah, still they clap. They still like it. And they were saying like some of them just sit in the same same seat every time. <laughs> for it's, 20 years. And it's the same guy, and you're like, yeah, I know him. He fakes it. But then I still laugh. I don't know why. I don't know why, but I do. That, that was the weirdest thing was uh, reading that it was like a dude in his second decade. He's just been faking stuff like, for 20 years. You've just been sitting in the same operas for 20 years. Wow, you know, just I didn't think about how weird of a job every that is. single day. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I was whenever I've gone to Broadway plays, which has been like twice, I think, um, it always just kind of strikes me that their job is to go out there and do the same exact thing as as perfectly exact as before as they can make it over and over and over again. It just it, it felt very weird to me to think about that. Yeah. Because I almost never do the same exact thing twice. And that actually got me thinking about like every business has a certain aspect that you have to duplicate over and over again to make money. And like with a play, you can write it once, but then you have to perform it again and again and again and again. Whereas with our business, we don't have to get audiences again and again and again. We get the same audience once, but then we have to make new things again and again and again. And it's kind of a weird inverse. Yeah. There's always some duplicated thing. I was thinking about this in the context of like advertising agents because I was like, man, how how cool is it that you can basically like make money on one client and then to make more money, you just have to find a new client. You're doing the same business essentially over and over again. You don't have to sit down and be creative every single week 
to do that kind of a business model. Or if you're making a product, if you're making a coffee mug, you don't have to come up with a new coffee mug per se to make yeah. an extra dollar. You just have to find a new customer for it. And I think I was just thinking about this from my perspective as a creator because sometimes it is frustrating and difficult to come up with new material. And there's always that grass is greener idea. Let's just release this same episode two weeks in a row. Over, we could do and that. And see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, we will make more money, like, like a dollar more in AdSense revenue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we may lose some subscribers or they're just going to think That's we've fine. lost our minds. That's fine. Why did you upload the same episode twice? It was a glitch, but I'm not going to take it down. Yeah. I want that you ad revenue. stick to your guns. <laughs> exactly. You got to stick to your guns. Yeah. So there was the can laughter thing. There was the, the opera clackers example. Um, one that I have heard of before, before I read this book, was salting chip jars at oh, bars. Yeah, yeah. So bartenders, when they open their the bar for the night or they start their shift, they'll put a few of their own dollar bills into the tip jar just to basically show that, hey, the right thing to do is to put money in the tip jar. Look, somebody else already did it. Wink. Yeah. And um, they do this at churches as well. They'll put a few dollars in the offering plate before sending the plate around. So that was pretty interesting. Um, now social proof can be a lot more powerful than some of the stuff that we've talked about so far. And there's a couple of big stories here. I don't want to get too big into the Jonestown story because well, it's really gruesome. I think that gruesome, was one touched but, in, in one of the other lessons as well, because there are so many psychological principles in there. Yeah. Yeah. That one. But also, yeah, that gets pretty dark. I don't want to think about it gets that too much. Really dark. Yeah. Um, you, you can go look that one up if you really want to. But what I wanted to talk about was the cult story. Yeah. The cult yeah. of people who thought that flying saucers were going to come save them from the earth and save oh, them from yeah, a giant and, and flood. And they couldn't wear metal because it messes up the, Can't wear metal. the spaceships or something. Yeah, it'll mess the spaceships up. Uh, but before I do that, we actually are recording with a different camera this week because my other camera broke. And it has a 30-minute recording time, so I'm going to get up real quick and turn it off and on again. Yes. And uh, while I do that, we'll go to the ad break real quick. This week's episode of our podcast is sponsored by Brilliant. Brilliant is a learning platform that is focused on active problem solving, which helps you learn a lot more effectively than you would if you were sitting in classes, listening to lectures, or just passively watching videos. And they focus mainly on math, computer science, and science. So if you're interested in any of those kind of courses, Brilliant is the fantastically effective way to learn those things. And I've actually been going through one of their courses on computer uh, science fundamentals, and I've actually learned a lot about different algorithms, different sorting methods like bubble sort and um, insertion sort, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Cool. All kinds of pretty cool stuff on their platform. So I'm a big fan of it, and uh, I really like their approach to learning. Now, they have a lot of courses on their platform, but because we're talking about social proof and we're talking about all these ways that people like to manipulate other people in this whole series, I do want to mention one of their courses, which is all about logic. Uh, if you take this course, then you'll learn about the methods of logic, the basic tenets of it. Um, you'll learn about game theory and some strategic thinking. And taking a course like that is overall going to make you a lot more rational in how you go about your daily life. And you're going to be able to more rationally think through situations where people might be using social proof to try to influence you. Um, 
And beyond that, they also have courses in probability, they've got courses in calculus, they've got courses in astronomy and gravitational physics, and in lots of computer science areas like algorithms and machine learning. So if you're interested in any of those kinds of topics, you should definitely give Brilliant a try. In addition to those courses, they also have a ridiculously detailed wiki. So when you're getting into the problems, because Brilliant just throws you right into problems right away, there's no sitting and doing intro stuff, it's just challenge and uh, solving a challenge right away then you can get you can dig into their wiki and you can use that to build the underlying knowledge you need to solve those problems um, they also have a community where you can also communicate with other learners you can ask questions you can solve community problems together there's all sorts of stuff to enhance your learning experience on brilliant so if you want to give them a try you can do it for free over at brilliant.org slash college info geek and if you're among the first 200 people to sign up with that link you'll also get 20 percent off of your first annual subscription so once again that url is brilliant.org slash college info geek and big thanks to them for sponsoring this episode all right let's get back into it Ugh. eric andre sit down once again okay the patented eric andre Sit down, move. You owe him money now. I probably do. I probably owed Eric Andre money before for something or other. I don't know. Or if even if I didn't, he would probably act like I did. That's fine. Not even to want money, just to mess with me. It just seems like something he would do. I'd just pay him. <laughs> so, the cult story. I think this was back in the 60s, you think? I can't remember if they I don't said the, the date. date. It was modern day Chicago, but I think he wrote this quite a while ago. And he may have been recalling it sometime in the last back. century. Yeah, it was definitely um, after 1950 because they referenced Captain Video, who was I don't on know the Honey Uh Really old TV character. And basically, in Chicago, there were these two people who were really interested in flying saucers and cults and supernatural stuff and all the kind of stuff like that. One was apparently a doctor at a college. And he was the one who was, like, really geeky about flying saucers. Yeah, when I read that, I was just like, I hope they fire him by the end of this story. This is, I would not feel very comfortable getting all of my treatment. Spoilers, they totally did. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was this woman who said that she had this contact with these guardians, quote unquote, on other planets. And they would communicate using her as a vessel through this device called automatic writing, where her hand would just leap to the paper with the pen oh. and just start transcribing you know what, you know what they were weird? telling her. It kind of looks like regular writing. Kind of. But it's but not, though. You really have to look at the pixels. Uh, also, one of the Guardians later revealed themselves to be the current embodiment of Jesus Christ. Yeah, Sananda. Yeah, he Sananda, is Jesus. obviously. Yep, and he's just everyone, hanging out on, like, Titan knows. or something. Everyone knows. Or Phobos, one of those two. Somewhere out there. Anyway, they end up convincing a small number of people to join their cult, and... At one point, she gets an automatic message that she writes out that a giant flood's coming, and it's going to flood the Western Hemisphere first, and then it's going to go destroy the entire world. But worry not, dear cultists, because everyone who believes in the teachings of the Guardians will be saved by a flying saucer. And all you got to do is memorize all these weird secret passwords and rip all the metal out of your clothing. Yeah, I am my own porter, and... What is your question? They were really like (laughs) you were trying to get into an alien speakeasy or something. Something like that. Well, I mean, it's who pretty, doesn't it's, want to get into an alien speakeasy? Yeah. I'm down for that. That's fair. I don't necessarily need to rip all the metal out of my clothes, but... You do. Cantina look, rules. I just want to try a pan-galactic gargle blaster. 
And I also really want saying? I really want the binging with Bobby's channel to try making that. I don't know what's in it. I don't even know if Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy says what's in it, but I want him to make it. Okay. That's like my number one request for his channel. Anyway, yes. they all think this is true. And to set something up that we're going to talk about later, at this time, before the deadline for when they think the saucer's going to come pick them up and rescue them, they're kind of like mum about everything. They don't tell anybody. Yeah, they're about, not out there with the signs that yeah. are like, the end is near. They're they not don't have anybody. the end is nigh signs. They're not standing on the corner with sackcloth. Um, if somebody comes to them, they're willing to accept them into the cult. They're willing to talk about their beliefs and that kind of stuff. But they're, they're kind of secretive about a lot of stuff. They'll have like secret messages that they're not even allowed to write down. And there's a lot of stuff they're not allowed to share. And uh, on the day of this this giant flood, when they're going to get rescued, all these news cameras and reporters come to the house, and they basically get told no comment, no comment. They don't yeah, they won't. They won't even tell anybody. Mm-hmm. So that all happens. They're pretty secretive, and they're sitting there. And then, of course, midnight comes, and no flying saucer shows up. No world-ending cataclysmic event transpires. I'm surprised. Turns out, you're wrong. Uh, and they're all just sitting there kind of devastated. And then about four hours after midnight, the lady with the automatic writing powers gets another message, right? And she starts writing down, oh, sitting there the whole night with your, with your belief, you shone so much light upon the world that God has decided to spare it. That was the explanation that they quote unquote received. Yeah. And it wasn't enough for one guy. One really guy just. a lame plot twist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looks like you guys canceled the apocalypse just by believing yeah, hard enough. Right at the end of the movie, they're just like, "Hey!" And suddenly, God saved everyone. Like it was she wasn't. Fine. It wasn't even a creative message. Nope. <laughs> well, just... maybe maybe it was more creative than the reports. Maybe I don't know. I haven't seen the message myself. It could have been like an L. Ron Hubbard novel. Maybe maybe it was something like that. <laughs> um, one guy stands up. He walks out. He's done. But the rest of them accept this. But, and this is what I was referring to earlier, they now start going out and preaching to everyone they can find and trying to get more people into the cult and all this kind of stuff because their belief had been shaken so hard, the only thing they had left to rely on was other people's belief in the same thing. Yeah. Like, social proof was the only thing left for them. So they, they figure, after we've basically been proven wrong Mm-hmm. By all the physical evidence, by everything that's happening. But if these other people believe us, then maybe we're still being reasonable. Exactly. Yeah. So their identity was so tied up in this. And there were a lot of really sad quotes, actually. Like, I quit my job and I, oh, yeah. I they, like, left sold my all their family stuff. and sold they all my stuff. Quit their I have studies. to believe there's nothing else that I can do. Like, this has it's to no be good. true because I basically ruined my life for it. And it reminded me a bit of that transcendental meditation example we talked about yeah. in another uh, another week where For that professor basically just demolished their argument about it, but people still signed up. And I think part of that is that they have all these problems in their lives and they had been given this promise that transcendental meditation would solve all their problems. And they had all this hope bundled up in it. And when the argument and all the logic and rationality takes that argument down and dismantles it. That is a threat to the hope they've built up in their minds. So by signing up and by looking at all the other people who are still deciding to sign up, 
they can say, well, all these people are still doing it. No, so, we're part of something big. Yeah, maybe there's you know one percent chance that it actually does work out, and it's just one of those things that science just doesn't doesn't know how to quantify. Well, in this case too, it's their little their little cult, their little mini religion. There is a ton of uncertainty when it comes to anything, considering when the world's going to end, mm-hmm. what happens like your life, and what are you going to do? That's the biggest uncertainty we have. So they think desperately, please, we need to solve it with some sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think this happens in a lot of little things, too, where you just, you just want to believe, so you're just looking at what other people do. Yeah. And, you know, it's it doesn't work out, but people still do it. Okay, so I want to talk about this whole phenomenon of pluralistic ignorance. Yes. Um, and we'll get it into some of the active exploitation that people do. We already mentioned things like the, the, the clackers and the salt in the tip jars. There's definitely other things out there, and I've got two examples I want to go over. But the pluralistic ignorance example is probably the most important thing to talk about here because if you know about this and you know how to combat it, it could actually save your life someday. Yeah, or someone else's if you choose or not to be else's. one of the pluralistically ignorant. Yeah, actually, that may be even more important here because out of all the people listening to this podcast, very few of them will be in an emergency situation, but more of them statistically will be a bystander to an emergency yeah. situation. So you've probably heard of the bystander effect before, dear listener. I always look at the camera and then I realize that most people aren't looking at a video. You don't have to look. You're looking at the listeners' souls. I, I am looking at their souls. They're pretty good souls. Eight out of ten. Eight out of ten. Yeah. <laughs> could be better, to be honest. Yeah, you could probably work on that a little bit. Uh, okay. So the bystander effect basically is the observation that when an emergency happens, when somebody's being assaulted or attacked or they're having a heart attack or they're you know, in the street lying bloody face or something like that or in a car crash. Yeah. They are much more likely to get help if there is one single bystander than if there are a bunch. And the reason this happens is due to what they call in the book pluralistic ignorance, where if there's a little bit of uncertainty in the situation, then because people don't know what to do, they start to look to everyone around them to try to figure out what they should do. But the other thing is that people don't like to look like they don't know what they're doing. So instead of, you know, crouching down and looking around and asking, what do I do? I don't know what I'm doing. Do you know? People will just kind of casually yeah. look around. Yeah. What's he doing? Eye people Except bit. for the people they're looking mm-hmm. at are doing the same thing. So everybody's exactly. just looking at each other like everyone seems calm and somewhat pensive. So, yeah, it's this circular thing. I'll be calm and pensive. Exactly. And Everyone, you don't want to embarrass yourself by going, oh, God, is that man okay? And it's just, mm-hmm. I'm just drunk, actually. Yeah, it's not you can be em- drunk in the And street. then you're like, oh, I feel so foolish mm-hmm. for caring enough to find out if this man was dying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that sounds really weird when you put it that way. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it, that's kind of what it is. Or you might not know what to do. Or I think a lot of times what the situation actually is, is people will think, oh, well, I'm sure somebody else will take care of that. Yeah. I'm sure there's somebody else here who's more qualified than I am to deal with the situation. Or maybe somebody already called the cops, already called the ambulance. I probably don't need to call a second time. Yeah. Why wouldn't somebody call? Obviously, this person's hurt. Somebody has probably called already. But everyone thinks that. So a lot of times, nobody gets helped, which is real weird. Yeah, it's but funny because that's that happens. second call would be far less inconvenient. 
mm-hmm. than that person not getting any calls. Yeah. So uh, the example they gave of this is that in 1964, a woman in Queens got murdered in the street. And it wasn't a quick thing. Like this guy, this crazy guy, chased her through the streets of Queens for 35 minutes. Uh, and it was like three separate instances where he was scared off by a neighbor, maybe yelling out the window, but then came back. And eventually she died. And the weird thing is all these people in this neighborhood had seen it happen and not a single person called the cops. So the newspaper's explanation of it at the time was that cities are making us cold to each other. Because everyone's crowded in the cities, they're all just, they have to turn inward and they have to put up walls because it's just so oppressive living so packed in and so close to everyone that cities are just making us this callous race of people who don't help their fellow man anymore. Oh no. Oh no. And this was a narrative that kind of took hold of the country for a little while. But when researchers and social psychologists went to figure out what would happen, it was not that at all. It was this pluralistic ignorance where people basically thought somebody else probably took care of that. Or maybe it was a dude just chasing after his crazy girlfriend or something like that. Like they didn't know. And because they could see that other people had seen the situation, they didn't choose to act. They yeah. didn't think they needed yeah, to. That, that guy over there is clearly watching him. He's going to do it. Yeah, he's going to He, he looks smarter than me. Exactly. So to deal with the bystander problem, if you're the one in trouble, then as long as you can, you want to single one person out and you want to make it very clear to them that, number one, this is an emergency. You are in trouble. You are hurt. So you want to clear up the uncertainty and you want to give them a task. So you right there, man in the blue jeans and the Mickey Mouse hat. Why are you wearing a Mickey Mouse hat out in public? I don't know why you're doing that. Call me an ambulance, please. Yeah. We'll talk about your fashion choices later. I have a head wound. Yeah. Whereas if you yelled that to the group, every, like half of everybody would just walk away and they'd be like, somebody in the group's calling. I'm yeah. sure. Why not? But, was he pointing at me? But Mickey Mouse the guy, Mickey Mouse guy is like, well, first he's probably like, oh, I'm being singled out. But next he's like, I got to be a hero. I don't even know if he's, he's going to be okay. I think the immediate reaction, if if you know now, I assume oh, he has social anxiety because I don't know. He's wearing this Mickey Mouse hat everywhere. Why would you assume that? I don't know. He's I a don't confident know. I man. Just, I just felt like it. It takes some confidence to walk out wearing the mouse ears in public. That's all I'm saying. He's actually a hero. Maybe he is breaking down the walls of conformity that restrict us today. Okay. Fine. <laughs> but no, I think the moment that the guy knows. This is an emergency. The moment he knows that and then he's given the task and singled out, he's just going to immediately think, I need to help. I know it's me. I need to help. Nobody else is called. I'm going to call. Yeah. And the interesting thing the book pointed out is that once one person is assigned and they take action and everyone else sees them taking action, now the, the whole script is flipped and everyone starts to help out because there's new social proof happening. Now everyone knows, yeah. okay, there is an emergency. Somebody else is helping, 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 and I probably should help too. So now you're going to get a bunch of help. Yeah. It's not that they're cold and uncaring. It's that they're all weird and chronically unsure. Yeah. And afraid to embarrass themselves in a group. Yep. Which so, seems very dumb reasons <laughs> for people to get hurt, but it, it it happens, I guess. Exactly. Don't be afraid to embarrass yourself because you could die instead. And, and also, that'd be pretty embarrassing. as far as the cold city thing, they pointed out several reasons why it's, it's an accident that this happens more in the cities because mm. you're more uncertain mm. when they're strangers. You don't you yeah. don't you don't know them. You don't know their situation. Whereas in a small town you're like he doesn't normally lie on the ground like that. Like you know. There's a lot of people who normally lie on the ground in cities. Yeah. It just happens. 
Yeah, so basically there were a bunch of coincidental things going on that made the uncertainty higher in an urban setting. Yep. And then people get hurt more, so it's not everybody being cynical in the cities. It's yeah. just it's just a weird social accident. Well, and because people are more densely packed together, it's much more likely that you're going to have a group of bystanders rather than a single bystander. Yeah, when, are, when is it going to be one person? Yeah, in a small town, it's often going to be one person. You know, you're just more spread out, less population density. Uh, the other thing, though, is his general uh, recommendation for dealing with social proof entirely is to just pay attention to that automatic script in your head, that autopilot. And when you notice something that is a little bit confusing to you or when you realize, oh, my only justification for doing this is because other people are doing it, then you want to take a more critical look at it. If you happen to be a bystander and something confuses you about a situation and you maybe think that there could potentially be an emergency, then I guess just just keep a rule in your head that no one else is going to act, so you should be the one to act. Yeah. And I even mean, though it, we're it telling you... It can be this, as simple as saying, hey, are yeah. you okay? Exactly. Are, are we good? Okay, you're fine. Cool. It's not that... Mm-hmm. And even though you know we're telling this to thousands of people on the podcast, but you still form a very small percentage of the people in the world... Yeah. So if you're in a bystander situation where you are a bystander, you're probably going to be the only one who has that built into your head. Everyone else is going to act this way because it's just human bro- uh, programming. Yeah. Well, and that's that's the hard part about this is that no matter how many of these lessons we go over and no matter how many cognitive things we do that don't make sense as humans, we're all irrational. Predictably irrational is the name of a book about that, right? Yeah. And like I read that someday. The problem is that just because we know this doesn't mean it's fixed. It's like our brains are a faulty computer, and we know that it's faulty, mm-hmm. but that that doesn't mean that it's not faulty. It's still going to do the same things sometimes. Yeah. We just have to occasionally say, wait, 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 wait. I know why that happened. Mm-hmm. Let's stop. You, you can't just be cured. Yep. It reminds me of one of the biggest lessons that I read or that I took from reading Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality which is just the simple idea of noticing when you're confused. And if you can take notice of that, then you can ask yourself, am I confused because my model of reality is inconsistent with reality, meaning I have a a belief that's wrong, or is it because something is actually wrong and the situation I'm looking at is actually not normal right now. Either someone is lying to me or that person on the ground there's some red stuff on their head that's probably not ketchup. They're probably hurt. I'm confused. Why are they on the ground? Yeah. And then you take action instead of thinking, oh, it's probably fine. He's probably just a drunk yeah. person on the ground. Yeah, it's all about trying to catch yourself. When when you're exactly. uncertain, that's mm-hmm. when you're likely to take all these shortcuts. Yep. And the whole noticing confusion thing is also very useful for when people are trying to exploit social proof to make you do something that you wouldn't otherwise oh, yeah. do. Wait a second. Why am I about to sign this paper? Yeah. And so the social proof thing, the immediate thing that this chapter made me think of was way back when I started blogging, there were all these articles out there saying you need to get Twitter followers, not because you need to use Twitter to actually make real genuine human connections with people. No, you just need to pump up that follower number so people will think that you're legit. If all these people follow him, why shouldn't I follow him? Oh, and that's why they want the social bars on the side of your website that are like, this is how many things happen. And that's why there are bots all over Twitter and Reddit that just spam nonsense because you're just going to be like, oh, look, a ton of people are saying this viewpoint. Yeah. They're all fake. But then suddenly real people follow them. 
That's because of social yeah. proof, and now you've got a real audience out of manufactured stuff. And there are sites on the internet you can go to, and you can buy followers, you can buy YouTube subscribers, you can buy all this stuff, and they're all bots. They're all fake. Well, it doesn't even matter. Blatantly faking be... didn't affect it. It still worked. Yeah. So people will pay real money to get these things, and all those people, quote-unquote, that are following you, you wield no social influence over them because they're either bots or they're either just accounts run nominally by people, but they don't really pay attention to them. They don't care who you are as a person. You're just a number on their list and they're a number on your list. But it creates that external picture of, oh, look, this is a person with a lot of followers. And it works, you know? Um, I was on Twitter the other day and this person tweeted out some question that I found pretty interesting and I clicked on their profile and they had 400,000 followers on Twitter and then their bio said they were a YouTuber. And because YouTube is my main platform and Twitter is more like a casual platform for me, the whole archetype in my head is that like your Twitter follower count should be a lot lower than your YouTube subscriber count. That's just what I've seen. Like it's okay. most YouTubers are like that. Their Twitter follower account, sense. even the, if it's high, it's going to be going over there. Right. That's their main thing. So I was like, wow, this, I've never heard of this guy, but he's got 400,000 Twitter followers. He must have like 2 million or 3 million subscribers on YouTube. And then I went over to his YouTube and he actually has less followers on YouTube than on Twitter. And then I just kind of took notice of that. I was like, wow, there's like this social proof archetype built in my brain that makes me automatically think this person much ha- must have a huge platform somewhere else. Yeah. You know, and 400,000 on YouTube isn't anything to sneeze at, but it wasn't anywhere near my expectations. So this, the principle of social proof really does work. Yeah. And even if you thought some of them were bots, it's it's going to be like, well, I'm sure sure some of them are bots, but I mean, that's a big number. So a good chunk of them have still got to be real people, right? And then you just like willingly it's fool true. yourself yep. into You'll stuff that you know isn't true mm-hmm. just because. Now, if you're like me, and I don't know if, if other people have like the, the nose for this because maybe other people don't care, but when I see somebody with a lot of followers, I'll often go just look at their last few tweets just to see what the engagement is like on the tweets. Oh, yeah. And if I see you have 100,000 followers, but only three likes on your last tweet, mm. then I'm like, okay, so you just bought a bunch of followers. And then I lose a lot of respect for them. I want to buy some. I'll probably lose respect for you. Nice. Sorry. That's fine. <laughs> but I know you're not actually going to do that <clears throat> because you don't care that much about Twitter. No, I don't even really tweet. It's not that <laughs> Low important. engagement. <laughs> <laughs> um. But I do want to say that just because people do this and just because it is definitely a way to somewhat manipulate the opinions of others doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it or you shouldn't think about it when you're establishing your own online presence or when you're doing anything else. Imagine you were building a, a website for yourself to advertise your services as a consultant. Maybe you build websites yourself. And... The only testimonial you have is from your mom. And let's say you even built a website for your mom. It's not her just saying, oh, my son is the greatest ever. And boy, oh boy, you better hire him or I'm going to hit you on the head with a rolling pin. Maybe you actually built a site for her. That'd be pretty good. It's still your mom. And if that's the only testimonial on your website, people can clearly see it's your mom. They're going to think this is number one, nepotism and number two, pathetic. Because clearly he has nobody else who can give him a testimonial. Better to have no testimonials at all 
and just let you, your services that you're offering and the strength of your own portfolio and the copy you're writing about yourself, let everything stand on that. Don't show testimonials until you have one or two that are from external sources, from people that other people can trust simply because they can tell they're not your mom. Yeah. Or, you know, whenever you go on a website that has a bunch of logos, like there's usually some brands we work with, you're usually going to notice and recognize some of those brands. If you don't, it's not only ineffective, in my mind, it actually hurts a little bit. If I see a bunch of logos and I've never seen a single one of them before in my life, I'm thinking, these people are super small time. They've never worked with a single company I've heard of, and they have all these logos on their website. Yeah, they're like showing off these people that you yeah. haven't heard of. Like it, it looks, again, a little bit pathetic to me, which is the same reason why on if I were building a website for myself, I wouldn't show a follower count of 10 yeah, you wouldn't show the count at all unless it was yeah. really big. I think, and I, I, I'm trying to remember this because this was so long ago, but I think on College Info Geek, I didn't show the follower counts in the sidebar until Twitter hit 1,000. I think that's what it was. Hmm. And this was just me reading blog posts, basically, so I don't, I don't really know what the number was, but I just had this instinct that if I showed a really low follower count in the sidebar then it would just kind of look like, oh, he's trying to display his audience, but it's really tiny, so it, yeah. it just it, highlights the fact that you're actually you really small dismiss. time. Yeah, whereas if I just never showed it at all, then no one would ever think about it, and it would be fine. Yeah, so all of these things can be used for, like, really slimy business things or to take advantage of people or to whatever, but that does not mean you shouldn't keep them in mind because they do affect what people think of what you're doing, mm-hmm. and they're going to affect your life, and they're also good in a lot of situations because often we do need to look to the crowd to find out what the correct thing to do is. Yeah, yeah, often you do. But it's also worth being aware of how people use it. Yeah, double-check, but don't get all angry because, Mm -hmm. uh, psychological principles, I'm not a puppet. (laughs) I'm going to do the opposite of what everyone's doing. That's not going to help either. That is just as irrational as, as doing it the other way. Yeah. So, again, it's all about noticing when people are using social proof to try to convince you to do something and then asking yourself, what are the merits of this thing regardless of the social proof? Yeah. Unless it's people running away from something in on mass, like I'm probably just going to run away. I know in movies, the hero always runs through the crowd the opposite way and then goes and fights the dinosaur or something. But I have low confidence in my dinosaur fighting skills. Yeah. As confident as I am in many well, other things. I mean, if I, I came know. home and everybody that lived in the apartment complex was standing outside waiting and looking at the building, I'd be like, I'm not going to go in there yet. True. Because otherwise, that would be dumb. Yep. <laughs> Clearly, something's happening. Now, I'm probably going to ask, why are you guys all out here? Yeah. Are you having a beach party out here? Or is there a gas leak? Like, I want to seek out more information so I can build a profile of what's going on and make a rational decision. I'm not just going to be a lemming. And actually, that's that's not fair, Lemmings. Lemmings don't actually go off cliffs like that. Oh, no. I'm not just going to be a blind follower and go along with what's going on without trying to figure out why it's happening. But I will take cues, and I probably won't just trundle into the building and then Yeah, your first response shouldn't be, well, I don't care what they're doing. I'm my own man. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so there was, I think there was one other example I wanted to talk about when it comes to exploiting. And... In the book, they called it the the racetrack example. Ah, yeah. So this employee of a racetrack wrote to Robert Cialdini and, and talked about how basically a lot of the people who go and bet on horses have no idea what they're doing. 
They don't know about odds. Like they a weird don't know hobby. About gambling psychology. They don't even know about horses. They just think, I'm going to go watch a bunch of horses race around the track and maybe win some money. That'll be fun. Yeah. I'll get some free beer nuts too. And they usually just go and put money on the horse that looks good based on the odds. And the odds are updated to the minute. So what the high rollers will do is they'll come in, they'll have an idea in their head of the favorite horse that they actually think is going to win. And then they'll go pick a horse that they think is really bad and is going to lose, but they'll put an initial big bet on that horse. Because what that'll do is it'll take its odds down from like 15 to 1 to maybe 2 to 1. Yeah. And it'll say, oh, this is a current favorite. This, people are betting on this one. So then all the, uh, I think what Anthony Bourdain calls them is the rubes, all the all the plebes are just going to bet on that horse, sight unseen. They can't even look out the window and see that it has only three legs. And the jockey <laughs> is just like an anime nerd who is definitely not in shape for it this seems against sport. The rules. And he's also got a weight vest on and... The horse now has two legs, actually. Why did it lose a leg? It's like a necrotic horse. It's actually a dead horse, it turns out. Okay. (laughs) They have it on a marionette. But it's the current favorite. Somebody must know something. Yep, they have it on a marionette, and like a drone's just kind of dragging it across the course. But This is very vivid. Two to one odds. I think that horse is going to win. There's something up its sleeve. It doesn't have a sleeve, but it's got something. Well, it's too obvious. People wouldn't bet on it. Look at it. They wouldn't (laughs) bet on it if there wasn't a secret. Exactly. So I'm going to bet on it. That's That's the secret trick. So they all bet on it. And then, of course, the high roller goes and bets more of his money on the favorite horse. But now everyone's put their money down, so the odds on the favorite horse are better for him, and he's going to make a lot more money if that horse actually wins, which it probably will. Yeah. Or it will at least beat the bad one that he faked everyone out on. Now, most people listening to this podcast probably aren't betting on horses, but as a lot of college students start to finish college or get later on in college they start thinking about investments and you know you and i talk about the smart investments the index funds the betterment accounts all that kind of stuff the stable but boring ones yes the stable but boring ones but there's also things out there like cryptocurrencies and penny stocks and all this kind of stuff which are a little bit more speculative and speculative just means that people are placing bets on things because they think it's going to go up or they think it's going to go down there aren't a whole lot of fundamentals behind it yeah so, um, and actually on Listen Money Matters, we made the mistake of interviewing somebody once who was a penny stock trader. And he basically had us convinced that everything he was doing was super legitimate and we couldn't see a flaw in it. So we interviewed him and we did an episode on it. And we basically like talked about what penny stocks are and all this kind of stuff. And then maybe like a year later, I read up on how does this guy make so much money in penny stocks? Well, He's not doing anything illegal, mm-hmm. but he's sharing his trades. And what happens when you share your trades? There's going to be people who follow you, especially if you have a personal brand as an authority on penny stocks. Yeah. And it's pretty easy to manipulate the price of a penny stock when the stock is only one or two cents and you got a bunch of people coming in with a herd mentality and they all buy that stock. And suddenly you were right the whole time because you, right. you took it and now it's valuable. <laughs> and now you can sell it. So, wow, this guy has just, he's hes $2 million up and he just can do no wrong. Man, I better follow his advice. But you're the reason he can't do any wrong. Exactly. This is called a pump and dump. You pump the stock up by talking it up, telling everyone, man, I just made this amazing buy. I'm pretty sure this company's going to the <laughs> this moon. This happened with a 50 cent tweet that I'm one getting time. getting my Lambos. He made like 10 mil in a weekend. He did do that. It yeah. was crazy. <laughs> he got in trouble for that, didn't he? 
I don't know that the trouble stuck, but he did at least almost get in trouble. I don't remember if it <laughs> ended up counting because he didn't technically say to invest in it, I think. He just bragged about it. So it was he like some weird, but like, yeah, I mean, you're going to you're gonna be like, well, 50 Cent, mm-hmm. that looks good. He's got money. His yeah. money is his name. I'm going to invest in this. Mm-hmm. And in the cryptocurrency area, there's all these altcoins out there, which maybe a few of them you can buy for like a cent or less than a cent or maybe a dollar or something like that. So you'll have all these cryptocurrency experts on YouTube saying, guess what? This altcoin is the next big thing. Forget Bitcoin. That's over. You got to get on this in the ground floor. Otherwise, wow. you're going to be so sad so and now kicking yourself that you missed out. So it's going to be a bunch of confusing nonsense because yeah. there's going to be infinite. Everybody made their own. So everyone buys, I don't know, kitty cat coin or something like that. Democratizing currency has downsides sometimes. <laughs> it does. You know, everyone goes and buys it because the famous YouTuber or whoever it is talks about it. And then, of course, he's got, it's a small enough currency and the price is small enough that a person with a relatively big audience can cause a pretty big upswing because they can generate demand. Yeah. And then they go dump their position and they're rich and the now tanking price of the currency because he is selling it now that creates a different hmm. type of pressure. He leaves everyone else to lose money. In like 20 years, we're all going to be, I'm going to be like, I have Martin coin and you have Tom coin and we will have accidentally gone back to bartering. Because we won't have a single shared currency and we'll constantly be just trading <laughs> stuff back and forth. I kind of want to make we're Martin undoing, Coin. We're undoing money. I want to make Martin Coin and Tom Coin just to see like which one well, is Well, better. honestly, they're a great investment, <laughs> both of them. I, I, they're both pretty I'd good. I put all my money it's in It's like Pokemon Red and Blue. You want to buy both. Yeah. You can't get all the Pokemon. You can't get a Sandshrew and an Ekans unless you have both of them. That's a good point. So very good point. Exactly. Buy Tom Coin, buy Martin Coin. I think we have really just hit upon the heart and soul <laughs> of this like podcast. I, I, if it was super easy, I think I would just do it for no reason. But I, <laughs> I don't really want to take the time to figure out how to make Martin Coin right now. There is a cryptocurrency podcast I listen to called the Bad Crypto Podcast, and they <laughs> did make their own coin. It's called Bad Coin. Bad. And coin. I like them because they don't pump and dump altcoins. They're pretty objective about everything. So. You know, and I, I think Bitcoin itself is potentially maybe a bubble. We'll see. I don't know. The price has been pretty stable recently. Well, I mean, a lot of its growth definitely can come from social proof. It is a lot <laughs> of social proof. Yeah, everyone's just like, look, I made so much money. I got 10 Lambos now. Why you got a 12-car garage when you only got six cars, man? And then they go and buy it. Keep pumping the price up. But anyway, that's that's a big example of social proof. And there are many, many more out there. I'm always keenly aware of... The fact that if somebody writes a comment um, that is in disagreement with something I say on a video, if I respond, it's almost unfair from the outsider's perspective because there is an innate social proof power lent to the argument that I'm making. And this, this is the case for anybody with a large audience. Like, they could be super wrong and people are going to back them up anyway because... They have the big audience numbers. Oh, so they got the big saying, numbers. Even if you're wrong, the, uh, a lot of people will default to your answer. Yes, and maybe start saying, "Hey, you're dumb. Why are you arguing with Tom? He knows stuff." Yeah. Now, if again, social proof is most powerful when you are similar to the to the social circle that you're around, or when there's uncertainty. So, if my argument is blatantly wrong, then people are going to call me out on it, and you know this happens a lot. But if it's a little bit more uncertain 
then boom, the social proof comes in. And that's an unfair situation, but it's just a feature of life and a future of humanity. Yeah. That we got to be a little bit... Uh, you can't get rid of it. What are you going to do? Put a little disclaimer on the bottom of every single statement? You know, <laughs> this may be affected by social proof. Please consider in its entirety this content. <laughs> please consider my statement <laughs> taken in a vacuum, please. Yes. <laughs> Just on everything. Yeah, exactly. So to recap here, social proof is useful in, the, in, in most cases, but just notice when you're confused. Notice when you're confused and then ask yourself... What are the merits of the thing that I am thinking about right now beyond the social proof argument? Um, and then don't be a bystander. Be a rescuer. Yeah. And if you need to be rescued, single out somebody. Tell them you're in trouble. Tell them you need help. And yeah, maybe tell them even if it. you were just like, wait, how would I respond to this if I was by myself? Maybe mm-hmm. that would be good. If you could imagine that quickly enough, that could be helpful. Yeah. And if you are going to sell something someday or you are pitching your services. Social proof is something that you should probably use as an argument because even though you might be sitting there with your podcast listening earbuds right now thinking, boy, everyone who uses social proof to exploit other people is horrible. They're not. It's just effective. And if you, if what you're doing is something you believe in that you think is truly good, and you need to use social proof to advertise it, I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. As long as you're not using it to trick people, to manipulate people to do something that is not in their best interest. Pumping and dumping a stock is obviously unethical. I don't think you should do that at all because you're going to hurt somebody. Somebody gets hurt by the influence you're wielding. Yeah, They're left when you dump the stock and they lose money. But if I make something amazing and I pour my blood, sweat, and tears into it, and then I think, you know what? Putting some testimonials from my satisfied customers on the sales page is going to increase sales through social proof, then that's fine. Because again, we're, we're doing something that we truly believe are gonna, or is going to help people. Yeah. And because social proof works and because it is part of human programming, then there's no reason not to use it. Just use it responsibly like any other tool. You know? Yeah. Shovels can dig holes and they can hit people on the head. And they can hit gators on the head too. Like in uh, Monsters, Inc. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, wait, I know what that is. <laughs> is that another gator in there? <laughs> Get the shovel. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that movie. I got I to gotta watch it again so that I can remember it. And on like that Monsters, Inc. quote, we will end this podcast, I think. I don't think there's anything else yeah. that we need to talk about. So this is episode 193. If you want to find the show notes for this episode with links to, number one, this book that we've been reviewing Um, All the previous Weapons of Influence episodes, we will also link to those in case you have missed them. And then anything else we happen to talk about in this episode, you can find those over at CIGpodcast.com slash 193. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, the link will be in the description down below. You can also go to collegeinfogeek.com slash resources if you want to find some of our favorite apps and books and gear that can make your educational life a better one. So definitely check that out if you haven't done so already. And beyond that, we will see you in next week's episode. Stay cute.